Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. People define these states as red and blue now as if there was only voters in that state or that color, and that's just not the case. That's Senator Doug Jones of Alabama. He was the first Democrat to win that seat in decades, beating Roy Moore in a nationally watched race last year. We talk about his career as a U.S. attorney and prosecuting civil rights cold cases, and how he makes decisions on contentious votes, like the recent Haspel and Pompeo nominations. As you may be able to hear from the sound quality this week, I am not in the studio. I'm down the shore, the Jersey Shore, that is, not working on my tan, but working on my book. So we're tackling your questions by phone. Let's go. Hi, Preet. Nick Redler calling from Boston, Massachusetts. My question is in regards to the president's Sunday tweet demanding an investigation into whether the FBI had infiltrated or surveilled the Trump campaign. I've seen that characterized as an unprecedented intrusion on the department's independence, and I'm wondering if that's so. And I'm also wondering if that Sunday tweet is meaningfully different than Trump's March 2017 tweets suggesting that the Obama administration had wiretapped Trump Tower. Do the words hereby demand make this a meaningfully different conversation? I'll take my answer off the air. Thanks. Thanks for your question, Nick. A lot of people have been asking about the president's tweet from Sunday and his odd I hereby demand language. It's unprecedented as far as I know. I think it's very odd for the sitting president to make a direct request of his own Justice Department on a Sunday by tweet. And then what's even more bizarre than that in some ways is the Justice Department making an announcement that it was going to have the inspector general's office expand an already existing investigation to take into account what the president wanted. So here's the weird thing that happened. You know, a lot of people started to say on Sunday afternoon after the president's tweet that he was marching us right into a constitutional crisis because the Justice Department, to preserve its own independence, Rod Rosenstein and Jeff Sessions in particular, would not want to be directed in this way because it breaks with norms, undermines confidence in the rule of law. So what Rod Rosenstein did was before even waiting for the official direction on Monday, took an incremental step. It turns out 
as you may have heard and read, that there is an investigation being done by the Office of the Inspector General into the use of FISA with respect to Carter Page. And so what I think Rod Rosenstein was trying to do was to thread a needle to appease the president who was on a rampage, also preserve his position in the Justice Department, but also not unduly give up independence and open up a political criminal investigation at the behest of an angry president tweeting from his quarters on a Sunday afternoon. So what he did was he simply said, well, you know, we already have an investigation going on by the inspector general. It it will be a thorough investigation. It's a nonpartisan, nonpolitical body within the Justice Department that has independence within the Justice Department, and we hope that will continue. And we'll just add this issue uh, to the other issues that they're already looking at. That has the benefit of taking away from the president a talking point that people are not looking into this other potential malfeasance, which, again, I don't think there's any evidence of yet. It also has the benefit of putting it on the back burner because the inspector general's office is very busy. They're doing a lot of different reports. It will take them some time, not just weeks, but probably months and and perhaps even longer, to take a look at the issue, at the end of which we may find that it was all a bunch of bluster about nothing, which often happens when the president tweets based on watching television. So I stand by the principal premise that I've stated over and over again, that the president of the United States should stay out of the everyday business of the Justice Department, should stay out of the everyday business of the United States attorney's offices. He should not be directing particular investigations into particular people from his perch at the White House. He should not be directing particular exonerations of people. It undermines the independence of the Justice Department. And I understand repeatedly over and over again, people keep saying, Well, the president has the constitutional authority to do certain things, but that's not where the inquiry ends. That's where the inquiry begins. And no one is saying that the tweet he sent about, you know, hereby demanding an investigation at the Justice Department violated his constitutional authority. It violates certain norms. I think it's unwise. I think it stokes disrespect for the rule of law. But if one is going to defend everything on the basis of constitutional authority, then I think we're in a lot of trouble in this country. The president, under his constitutional authority, could decide to fire everyone who has a college degree who works in the White House. He could decide to fire everyone who's left-handed. He could decide to fire anyone who has an IQ over 80. Those would be within his constitutional authority. They would also be unwise to do. There are all sorts of things that presidents can do, and for that matter, that prosecutors can do. There are all sorts of ways we could have exercised our discretion, and prosecutors all over the country could exercise their discretion to the fullest extent of the law. And as I tweeted recently, we would be living in a hellscape if we did that. Hi, Preet. This is Shannon from Ohio. Love the podcast. I was just calling because I am honestly confused about how much hot water Michael Cohen is in. I mean, it looks to me like he's responsible for some clear-cut bribery, but I have no idea where the line is drawn between what is unethical and what is illegal. Thank you very much and love the show. Bye-bye. Thanks, Shannon, for your question. It's an interesting distinction, right, between what is unethical and what is illegal. Many things that are illegal are both unethical and illegal. I think even from the statements of Michael Cohen himself, it's clear that he's engaged in admittedly unethical conduct, like settling disputes with third parties without consulting his client, if that's in fact true. On the question of how much hot water he's in, I don't love to predict things or predict particular crimes that people will be charged with. That's up to 
Southern District of New York, my old office, and I have no idea what they're up to. But the tea leaves are terrible for him. The Southern District to sign off on a search warrant of Michael Cohen's home, office, hotel room, safety deposit box indicates to me that they're very close to being able to bring a charge. It's a pretty big cloud to hang over someone, notably the personal lawyer to the president, if there's not a good amount of confidence that you'll be able to charge the person. And just this week, an associate of Michael Cohen's in the taxi medallion business has pled guilty in Albany and agreed to cooperate with authorities. That is not a good sign either. The bottom line is, given the search, given a lot of the reporting, it seems that Michael Cohen is, I believe, still very likely to be charged. We don't know what the scope of those charges will be. There are all sorts of materials that the special counsel probably has, including other bank accounts. I and mean, we just know about the one account through which he funneled money from some companies for doing a certain kind of lobbying work with the Trump administration and also the payoff to Stormy Daniels' lawyer. But there may be other accounts. In fact, the likelihood is that there are many accounts that we don't know about, that the press doesn't know about, but that the prosecutors know about. And we'll have to just see what happens. But to answer your question bluntly, he's in a lot of hot water. The next question comes in an email from Corey, who writes, Hey, Preet, first of all, big fan of not only the podcast, but of your work for the Southern District. Thanks, Corey. The question is as follows. This week, it was reported that Rudy Giuliani was told by Mueller's team that they hope to wrap up their investigation by September 1st. In one of your earliest episodes, you mentioned that a good prosecutor does not plan what day an investigation is going to end. You work until the facts have given you a full story. Mr. Mueller is obviously a great prosecutor, so my question is, do you believe Mr. Giuliani is telling the truth when he says investigators told him they hope to wrap up the investigation by September 1st? So thanks for that question. And I don't want this to become my weekly rant about former U.S. attorney and former mayor of the city of New York, Rudolph Giuliani, but I will tell you that it seems that a lot of the things that Rudy Giuliani says on television are calculated to mislead. And I think he has been saying things that are not true for the purpose of creating some kind of public narrative for the president, who also doesn't seem to mind that these things are not true. You'll recall that when Rudy first came on the scene, he said this will all be wrapped up in a week or two. Well, it's been a lot of weeks. Second, you are absolutely correct that it is inconceivable to me that a prosecutor is telling the defense lawyer, and in this context, that defense lawyer being Rudy Giuliani, that by some date certain, they will have wrapped something up. Now, you know, in my own job as U.S. attorney, there were occasions where we were clearly sensitive to the political calendar and wanted to make sure that the cloud was not hanging longer than it needed to hang over someone who was in elective office. So, you know, we tried to make decisions about going forward or declining well in advance of any election, which I think discretion requires us to do. So at the most, I'm guessing that someone said in an acknowledgement to the political calendar, to the president's team, look, we're, and I'm speculating here, but it's an educated speculation. Look, we have no interest in belaboring this and taking too long. It would be helpful if people were cooperative so we could get this done sooner, but we'd like to be done before the political season. That's the most I think anybody would have said. Rudy Giuliani likes to hype these things, it seems, by putting a date certain on it. There's been some other reporting that suggests that Giuliani has walked it back and is not saying that he was told by Robert Mueller himself that you know by 12 o'clock noon, high noon on September 1st, they were going to be done. But it, it's a continued method of Rudy Giuliani 
in his television defense of the president to be saying things that I think are not ultimately true. You know, the other thing he's been doing recently, which boggles my mind, is saying that the president of the United States is not subject to a subpoena for testimony, which is a fine legal view to have. Not everyone agrees with that view. But it is diametrically opposite to what Rudy Giuliani thought in 1998. And there's actually tape of him being interviewed by Charlie Rose saying in 1998 that a president absolutely has to respond and obey a subpoena to testify. Now, it's fine. Not great, but it's fine if your legal view has changed over time. But Rudy, who, who you know was a very good lawyer once upon a time, is not saying that his view has changed. He's basically not acknowledging that he said this earlier thing, even though it was shown to him on a television program. He talked over the earlier tape of him saying the exact opposite legal view that he seems to currently hold. And I'll tell you another thing that frustrates me. People get on television, whether it's Rudy Giuliani or anyone else, and they utter what looks to be a blatant falsehood, and they filibuster for the four or five or six minutes that they're supposed to be on television, and then they're off the hook. What I would like to see is the next time Rudy Giuliani is on television, somebody, not get in his face, do it in a respectful way, ask him your question. Who told you September 1st? Give us the name of the person who told you September 1st. They tell you this directly. What is the truth there? I would also ask the question, without letting him talk over the tape, did you once believe and say on television that you thought a president absolutely had the responsibility to comply with a subpoena for testimony. I sometimes think, and I've said this before, it would be valuable for people on television to spend their whole time on one issue as opposed to getting you know, nonsense and diversion in response to a question and then moving on to something else. I think people would be better served by a little more intensity in the questioning of people who get away with saying things that are false on television. My guest this week is Senator Doug Jones of Alabama. The senator and I spoke early last week. As you'll hear, he was weighing how to vote on the nomination of Gina Haspel to head the CIA. Later that same day, Senator Jones announced he would vote against her nomination. As I'm sure you know, she was confirmed last week by a vote of 54 to 45. But I wanted you to hear the factors the senator was weighing. I think it's important and fascinating to get a window into how our elected officials make these choices. We also talk about his prosecution of Thomas Edwin Blanton Jr. and Bobby Frank Cherry, two members of the Ku Klux Klan, for their roles in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham in 1963, which killed four girls and injured another. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned with Preet is supported by ZipRecruiter. Even when you're on the road, whether you're traveling for work or sequestered writing a book, you can stay on top of your hiring needs because every business needs great people and a better way to find them. And sometimes that hiring can't wait until you're back in the office. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. Right now, my listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Crete. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Crete. Senator Jones, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me. So when you walked into the studio, you're in a very good mood, and it seems like the reason you were 
You went to a concert last night. Yeah. Bon Jovi. Absolutely. How was it? It was awesome. It was great. Cory Booker helped arrange it. We had a, a nice little event there. It was great music, loud, very loud, incredible crowd. Brought the house down. This was just a good time and a good event. But at the same time, I'm really kind of more of a Springsteen fan when it well, comes to Well, welcome to the club. Guys. Yeah. Is Springsteen big in Alabama? Oh, yeah. Yeah, working class guy. Good. I mean, that was the that's the main thing. Working class guy I can relate to a lot of folks. So congratulations. Thank you. On your election. It's been a while, but you know, it's never too late to say no. congratulations. Well, it's it's been surreal for me. It was an amazing ride, an interesting ride. And being up here in the Senate, sitting in my old boss's seat, Senator Heflin's seat, you know, I people ask me all the time, Are you getting used to it? And I tell them no, and I hope I never do. I want to still have that same feeling like, you know, like it's a holiday or whatever it might be every time I walk onto the floor or just through the Senate halls. So it's great. So what's that like? You show up, you're the new guy because it was a special election. Are people neighborly? Do they bring you like a, yeah. a bun cake? Oh, well, I didn't get a bun cake. I did get candy. Who gave you candy? Uh, Who gave uh, you candy? Uh, Kamala Harris brought me a big tray of different kind of candies. And, you know, Booker brought M&Ms, which he knows I'm a kind of an M&M guy. Peanut? Peanut yeah, or regular? Yeah, peanut m and yeah, Got to be peanut. Uh, <laughs> you know, and there were different little things like that. But everybody on both sides of the aisle were really nice. How about Senator Schumer? Did he bring anything? Schumer, Schumer helped bring me to the Senate. So that was okay. enough. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you're a Yankee fan? Yep. In addition to being a Bruce Springsteen fan. Absolutely. How does that happen? Oh, well, well, you got to remember, I'm an old guy, you know, and I came up in an era of baseball where it was Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Joe Pepitone and Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra and all those guys. And they were, they were just the idols of the baseball world in my view. You know, seven years old, getting into baseball myself in 1961. And I can remember following baseball that entire summer and sitting in front of my little black and white TV watching Roger Maris hit that 61st home run. So that just doesn't leave you as a kid. So despite that we got the Braves, which I like, I go to Braves games, hadn't been to a Nationals game up here. I'm just still the, a Yankee fan from old. They're doing well this season. They're doing well this season, yeah. You think I, baseball's gotten too slow? Where I am right now with the pace that I'm going right now if I could get to a game that's a little bit slower game, I'm good with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you want the Bon Jovi concert to go fast. Yeah, yeah. After but a little the... bit, you were ready. My ears were about to explode. Right, right. So we have so much to talk about. You've had an unbelievable career. The last senator that I interviewed was uh, right here in the studio, Sheldon Whitehouse, who has mm -hmm. a similar sort of career to you, right. U.S. attorney, and then senator. Why did you become a prosecutor? Well, initially, it was almost by default. As an assistant U.S. attorney, I came up here. My first job was here in the Senate, working on the Senate Judiciary Committee with Howell Heflin from Alabama. It was his first year in the Senate. I had worked on his campaign. They offered me a kind of a one-year gig up here. Heflin was a former Supreme Court justice in Alabama, chief justice. And he wanted to establish kind of a clerkship, like a law clerkship for a year, like someone would go clerk for a federal judge. He wanted to bring a, a recent law school grad up for a year, work on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then go back to Alabama, practice law, be part of the Heflin family. So I did that, but I was fortunate enough to get a job as an assistant U.S. attorney. So I went back. I was put into a prosecutor's role early on. You know, I think my old boss saw that I had at least enough aptitude for trial work. And in those days, 
unlike where you were and, yeah. and later on for me. And in, in those days, we were getting files handed to us and say, hey, I'm, I'm busy. Can you go try this case right, right now? You know, so we literally go from courtroom to courtroom. You get a lot of experience that way. You do. So then later you became the United States attorney. Yep. How was that? It was awesome. It was a job that I had obviously aspired to for a while. I thought that it had passed me by and things just worked out just right. I was at the second term of the Clinton administration. And it was just a dream job. I still think being United States attorney is the greatest legal job in the world. It has a lot of prestige with it, but you also can do a lot of good things. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed You've it been there. <laughs> for yeah. the seven and a half years yeah. I did it. But there's a particular case that brought you a lot of attention and acclaim. I think listeners know about it, but I, I want to talk about it in a little more detail. And I think it seems to have defined you yes. in some ways and obviously played a role in your biography in connection with the Senate race. And that was a prosecution of a crime that happened years before you became the U.S. attorney. There was a bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. That bombing happened in 1963. Right. You were a kid. Yep. Nine years old. And how did, do you remember that? No. I, you know, I keep telling folks, I wish I could tell folks that I did, but I lived a fairly sheltered life in a little town called Fairfield, which was a U.S. steel town on the outskirts of Birmingham. And it was a segregated community like the rest of the South, and it was pretty sheltered. So you would see bits and pieces on television, but in those days, you know, the Yankees and Alabama football, those were the things that dominated my life at that right. point. So tell people what happened. What was the level of carnage at that church? Well, there were four young girls that were killed. And you have to set that stage a little bit. Well, what went on in Birmingham earlier in the year? Because 1963 in Birmingham was the defining year. It was really a defining year for the country, I think, because you had in the spring, you had what was known as the Children's Marches, where the kids marched through the streets of Birmingham. They met at 16th Street Baptist Church. And that's when they were met with the fire hoses and dogs that Bull Connor hoisted upon them. That summer, you had the stand in the schoolhouse door in Tuscaloosa. You had the murder of Medgar Evers, the I Have a Dream speech, more bombings that occurred in Birmingham. Birmingham City Schools were going to be integrated for the first time in the fall of 1963, and Birmingham was like a powder keg. And that kind of set the stage for the horrific bombing on a Sunday morning, right between Sunday school and church, about 1022, a bomb that was placed outside the church underneath some steps, right outside a window to the ladies' lounge that was in the basement of the church. And that's where these four girls, actually there were five, one survived, were getting ready for the youth worship service that was going to be that day. And four died and one survived. And not everyone was prosecuted for that crime. No, it took, um, it took 14 years for the first prosecution to take place. A fellow named Robert Chambliss, affectionately known as Dynamite Bob, who was thought to be involved in a lot of the bombings. My old friend, then Alabama Attorney General Bill Baxley, prosecuted that case. As a second-year law student, I cut classes and went and watched that trial. So that was in 1977? That was in 1977. So why did it it take so long to prosecute even the first person? It was just a different time. There was a couple of things. And, you know, the FBI did a really remarkable job, but— that was the first deaths that occurred in Birmingham among all the bombings. And the Klan members that were involved or even associated shut up. They just clammed up. So despite the incredible work, the FBI just could not make a case. And the state authorities were not even really trying. trying. I mean, they were looking to try to do crazy things like 
prove that the the black community bombed the church to try to help the cause. I mean, crazy stuff like that. And they just didn't have the evidence. Remember, in those days, it would have been an all-white male jury. And you can only look and see what happened in some of the other cases around the South. They would have never gotten a conviction. So you had the one trial in 1977 that you snuck out of law school to go right, see. Right, Did that? How did you feel when you were watching that trial? It was a defining moment. I mean, to watch, number one, a great lawyering, an Alabama attorney general still taking somewhat of a political risk in 1977. And then at the same time, you knew the significance. You understood the significance. You felt like things were beginning to turn and change and change for the better in my state and in the country in the South. There were nine white jurors, three black jurors that convicted Robert Chambliss. And it was a very moving experience. I can remember sitting in the balcony watching Baxley's closing argument with tears in my eyes. It was everybody in the courtroom was the same way. It was a very impactful trial to watch. And to see the success and how that was received was, I think, also very, very positive. What do you remember about the summation? I remember two things. One, he was only trying for the murder of one girl, Denise McNair. That day happened to be her birthday. And the whole summation, it almost sounds corny as we talk about it years and years later, was talking about giving her a birthday present that she had never got, and that is to bring her killers to justice. That was very powerful. The other thing I remember, there were pictures of those four girls that were taken in the makeshift morgue that had been set up at UAB Hospital. And Baxley had used those, as most murder prosecutions do. And as he laid those pictures on the rail in front of the jury, it was not like today where we've got, you know, PowerPoints and TV cameras and computer monitors. He laid those black and white photographs. You could just see the jury squinch up and you could see, we, I didn't see those photographs, but you could just feel the power of those photographs of those of those dead girls that I didn't see for 24 years later. And, yeah. and now I understood. So in 1977... Race relations were, were not great. No. And so how much controversy surrounded this trial back then? Well, I think there was a fair amount of controversy. Birmingham and Alabama had moved forward considerably, but you could still feel the undercurrent. You know, the next year, Baxley ran for governor, and I am convinced he lost that governor's race because of that case. Across the state, people resented it. He got a lot of hate mail from folks. Interestingly, he got a lot of hate mail from outside the state of Alabama, too. And I've got some copies of those. Uh, we never got that 24 years later when we did our cases. How strong was the case against Chambliss? I thought it was relatively strong. It was still a lot of circumstantial evidence. It's very similar to the case, I think, that we had against Cherry in that there was really no physical evidence that put him there. But statements that he made both before and after, you had a niece that testified against him. You had a lady who had been visiting from Detroit, who was coming in late one night at two o'clock in the morning before the bombing that morning on Sunday, saw an automobile park right near the church and identified Chambliss as being in there. So it was fairly circumstantial. I think the real killer for him was the whole defense had been built around him taking the witness stand. But Baxley had done such a wonderful job cross-examining folks that when he got up there, when the defense lawyer stood up and announced their next witness, would be Robert Chambliss. He said, I ain't going up there. <laughs> and Baxley, you know, as a, as a prosecutor, you can't comment. No. And Baxley tells his story. You can't comment on a defendant's refusal to take the stand. Baxley sitting next to the jury saying, what'd he say? What'd he say? 
And Chambliss just got louder saying, I ain't a going, I ain't a going. <laughs> Baxley never commented. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So Chambliss had not acted alone. No. There were other people. Yes. And it took another two decades, as you've mentioned, for someone else to be brought to justice. Right. How did that happen? Well, it was, a, it was a combination of events that occurred before I became U.S. attorney. The Justice Department and the black community in Birmingham kind of got at odds in the late 80s and early 90s over some public corruption investigations. There were a lot of lingering resentments. A new FBI agent in charge of Birmingham came in, wanted to right that wrong, kind of mend those fences. Very religious guy, started visiting the black churches. He was from Tuscaloosa, Rob Langford originally, and started visiting some of the churches and slowly developed a relationship and finally convinced um, the, some of the black preachers and other leaders to come visit him in the FBI office. And he said, what can I do to help? And they brought up the church bombing. They said, we've, we've always believed and know that there were others involved. Why haven't you done something? He said, let me check. Now, by this time, you got to remember there were a couple of prosecutions that have taken place in Mississippi. Byron Dale Beckwith had been convicted for the murder of Medgar Evers. Sam Bowers was convicted for the murder of Vernon Damer. And so there was in the community's mind that you can go back and you've got a whole new generation of jurors, prosecutors, investigators. And so, you know, Rob, to his credit, looked at it, talked to his superiors at the FBI, talked to then acting U.S. Attorney Carol Privet, reopened the case. And I came in about a year later uh, as the case was just beginning to get a, a little bit of legs. So and so it gained steam. It gained steam. Fairly quickly. Uh, you know, it took about 10 to 12 months for the two investigators assigned to the case to really go through the documents. All the files were still there. Right. But witnesses have passed and documents yes. have gone away and memories fade. Yep. So, you know, all cases are hard, as, right. as you and I both know, particularly difficult and hard yeah. when so much time has passed. Yep. How'd you overcome those well, challenges? Well, the first, the first thing that happened was right before I became U.S. attorney. In the, in, I became U.S. attorney in September of 1997. That summer, about a, six weeks before that, they decided to go out and visit Bobby Frank Cherry, who we ultimately indicted and convicted. They thought he was 72 years old. They thought he might break. He came close to helping and confessing back in the 70s. And they went out and visited him. He didn't break. They interviewed him for four hours. But what he did afterwards, about two or three days afterwards, he called a press conference. And he actually announced that the investigation had been reopened and that they were hounding him again. And when that happened, phones started ringing. And people that Cherry had made admissions to over the years started calling in and saying, let me tell you what he told us. One was his granddaughter. One was a fellow who was living in Birmingham who had been living in Dallas. We had several. There were like five. And then we ultimately found. And that was the real break that we needed. What's it like to hear that someone's granddaughter basically gave evidence against the grandfather? It was tough. It was tough for her. Now, she was estranged for the family. Uh, he had abused her earlier. And she had not been part of the family. She'd had a difficult life. It turned her life around. Right. Also makes her a difficult witness. Makes her a difficult witness. But she was so forthcoming. My assistant went out there to interview her the first time and came back so impressed. You know, sometimes people with difficult past like that can absolutely make the best witness. You know, she had a family. She had a child. Turned things around. She was a great witness. A year later, in a just a fluke of circumstances, we found an ex-wife of Cherry's. They had been looking for her for a couple of three years, could not find her. And a reporter from uh, Mississippi, Jackson, Jerry Mitchell from the Jackson Clarion Ledger came over and did a story just as we were starting grand jury. And that story hit the wire services. And this ex-wife saw the story in a little hometown newspaper in Montana and picked up the phone, called the FBI, drove a couple of hundred miles and said, let me tell you about this guy. 
I was married to him. He used to talk about the bombing. Car broke down near the church one time. He showed me the steps where they planted the bomb, talked about making the fuse. It was an incredible series of events that helped break this case wide open. Doesn't always happen. No, it doesn't always happen. And then the trial begins when? The trials began, we had two. We indicted the cases together, Blanton, Tommy Blanton and Bobby Cherry, in May of 2000. Trial was set in April. We had an issue with Cherry's competency, so we separated him, and we had to get him evaluated. About three or four months before trial, we also found a tape recording, a bug that had been placed in Blanton's house. He had then married his girlfriend, Jean, who was his alibi through these 30-something years, even though they were divorced. In that tape recording that we found with a conversation with him and a his wife and a third party who we never identified. He's talking about that weekend and making the bomb. It was the most damning piece of evidence. I mean, it was truly. Who placed the bug? The FBI. We didn't know about that bug for a lot of years. A lot of years. I mean, all the old agents that we interviewed said, yeah, you know, there were bugs everywhere and there were wiretaps. We didn't get anything. I usually keep track of the bugs. Yeah, I I got that. And, and, And there were notes, but they, after 30 years, they'd been put aside that one thing I think the reason why is that the FBI never thought that they could be used. They were put there for kind of intelligence gathering purposes at that time. And we were able, once we found it, I mean, literally, he says three times that weekend, making the bomb, planting the bomb. Uh, And his alibi, his then wife, who he was talking to, who was his alibi, uh, admitted that she lied to the FBI when interviewed. So she stayed off the stand. How did you feel when you heard the tape? I was literally bouncing off a wall. It was what we needed. We had a very, very, I won't say very, very weak case against Blanton, but it was pretty weak. We had one good witness who was very strong. We had a couple of others, but it was so circumstantial. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, and I've, I told folks, as much as I love being in the U.S. Senate, those two convictions were the best. What was it like convicting Bobby Frank Cherry? It was, you know, we convicted Blanton first and then Cherry. I think the Blanton— you, tr- you tried— Tried both of them. You tried both of them. Why did you try them personally? Well, because, I, you know, one, I'm an old trial lawyer. That's what I do. And second of all, I think my history with the case and with one of the family members, the McNair family, I'd known for many, many years. And I saw that that case had been open right as my nomination was kind of winding through. And, you know, you just get this sense sometimes that there is a purpose in what you're doing. I'd always wanted to be this U.S. attorney, but I couldn't completely explain why. And then all of a sudden this popped up and, and you just felt like there was a purpose in doing this. And it was an amazing ride. Uh, I think the more significant for me emotionally was the Blanton, the first one. You know, once we got over that hump, yeah. it, was, it was incredible. How much pressure did you feel to be successful in a conviction in the Blanton case? The, I, I felt a fair amount of pressure in the Blanton case because it was the first one, and I knew it would set the stage for the Cherry case. Cherry's case was still iffy. So there was a, a good bit, but, you know, you just kind of have to put that aside. We knew it was the right thing to do and to indict the cases. We had the evidence to do it. It was just a question of making sure we had a jury that would give us a fair shot. And we spent a lot of time on, on jury selection. And it, it paid off. In the Blanton case, the first trial, where you ultimately got a conviction, how long was the jury out? 
jury was only out about two and a half hours. What were those two and a half hours like for you? I was relaxed. I was satisfied. I felt like we tried the great case. I knew it was touch and go. Where it really got nervous for me was when, you know, we initially got word from the judge that he was going to let the jury go for the night. They were sequestered. And he was going to let him go for the night. He wanted us back in the courtroom. And I went back over there. And as I'm walking in, I find out that I needed to get in there quickly. And my associate co-counsel said, we've got a verdict. I said, no, we're just leaving. He said, no, Doug, we've got a verdict. Then I became really nervous for a quick verdict like that. I was really concerned. But a quick verdict often means conviction. It, it does. But I wasn't thinking that way. You know, going into it, we felt like the case was strong enough that one of only two outcomes would be there, either a conviction or a hung jury. And I was very worried about a hung jury. But a a quick conviction, my mind just went completely the opposite, and I was a wreck. And what was that moment like when the foreperson revealed the verdict? It, It was as emotional as you ever could get. And remember, we traveled under 1963 law. In 1963, the jury pronounced sentence as well as the verdict in Alabama. And so she read four verdicts. And the first one was, you know, we, the jury, find Thomas Blanton guilty of murder in the first degree and set punishment at life in prison. By the time she read the fourth one, she could barely speak. It was just like Blanton, murder in the first, you know, guilty, murder in the first, life. And that's all she could get out because everybody was emotional, including everybody on the team. And family members of all the girls were in the courtroom? Most of the family members were still there. Not all of them there. You know, Miss Robertson was elderly and she had gone back home. Her daughter was there. The McNair family was there. It was a time of both relief and rejoicing. It's a great achievement. And particularly so since you tried the cases personally. Yeah. And, you know, just as delayed for a long time, but... Not denied. Not denied. So you had a very pure job. Yeah. Uh, delivering justice for the people of Alabama and for that family and a lot of other families as well. And then you decided some years later to get into politics and it was successful. You're in the Senate. How did you deal with a lot of the nonsense that politics requires? Well, that's kind of an understatement considering the race that I had. Okay. I mean, you ran against a wow. gentleman by the name of Roy Moore. Yeah. There was a lot of nonsense in that. There race. was a, there was a hell of a lot. So, of ha- so, so you had these experiences you've been describing, which are very moving and very substantive, trying a case and bringing justice to people long denied. And now you have to deal with attacks and lies and, you know, I don't know what the technical term is, crap. Right. How'd you put up with that? I, you know, I was asked the day after a friend of mine in the media interviewed me, said, what did you learn about yourself? I said, well, I really learned that I had more discipline than what I thought. And I think there was that discipline from being a trial lawyer and staying with your process and staying with the things that you know you've got to do is exactly how we approached the campaign. We knew there would be a lot of nonsense. We knew there would be a lot of tax. We didn't ever contemplate the level of crap, as you said, that hit in that race. It's a legal term. It's a legal term. And staying disciplined and focused on what we believe to be the core issues in the race, which was health care and jobs. I know that every candidate says that, every public official, but it was true. And we stayed and we would always. But, did, but didn't, right you get, back. didn't you get mad when you're attacked personally 
Did you ever get mad? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And how do you handle that? I, st- I stayed home and I, you know, I yelled at the dogs or something. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it was, it was, it was one of those things you would get frustrated. I'm a, I'm a type A guy and I would pace around and I would talk and the staff and I would have certain really heavy conversations and you want to strike back. There was just, you know, we just really did not want to pull ourselves down would to that have, level. Would it have been easier, you think, if it was a regular election and the country's attention was divided among lots and lots of different races because in your race, the whole country was watching. Watching, yeah. Uh, lots of people not from Alabama. Was that disconcerting? Well, it, yes and no. As it happened, yes. I mean, we knew that there would get a lot of attention. Special election, December 12th, not a day you know we have elections. As it turned out, we had no idea the attention that it would actually get. And that was a pretty heavy weight. I mean, f- by the time we were finishing that race, there were too many people writing, calling, saying things that, you know, the hope of the country rests on this race. Well, that was a little bit That's more a of a cross to bear than we, than, <laughs> than we had planned on. But we still continued to stay focused. I think between myself, my wife, my team, we really did a wonderful job of focusing on where we were. Roy Moore was in hiding. He would not come out to talk to the media. We were out there every day. We would focus on our local folks. Number one, the news. Then we get with the national folks, and they always want to talk about what Trump tweeted out that day or this allegation of that. And I would give a very short answer and move right back to the issue of the day that I was focusing on. You're the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama in a lot of years. Yep. Are you a fish out of water? Is there a different metaphor yeah, that you no, use? I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, look, it's a pretty big pond down in Alabama. And there's a lot of fish down there. I mean, you got to remember, even though um, people define these states as red and blue now as if there was only voters in that state or that color. And that's just not the case. I mean, the complete unknown who ran against uh, my colleague, Senator Shelby, in 2016 got 740 something thousand votes. Now, Shelby got over a million and won the race handedly, but there is a core support out there. I mean, this guy spent virtually no money. So there is a base of support. And I also thought, and I, I believe to this day, and I think it's still happening around the country, that people were yearning for a different voice in Alabama to come through and someone with a platform that would kind of be true to themselves and authentic. To some extent, you don't see that a lot. I haven't seen it, I think, throughout the South, where people tried to move to fit what they thought was the mold, they would follow their polls as opposed to follow their hearts. And we didn't play that game. And there was a voice out there that I think people were excited about. And I think even in Alabama, there was an energy that was captured that we saw in the women's movement in January of 2017, as well as other places that we were able to capitalize on. How big a tent do you think the Democratic Party can have and also the Republican Party? You know, there's lots of Analysis saying that the Democrats are being pulled left, and some people think the Republican Party is being pulled right. How much room is there for people of different kinds of views in any particular party? I think there should be room for a number of different views in each party. I see the tent of the Democratic Party, even though it may be being pulled to the left, I still see the tent being larger than the tent in the Republican Party right now. I've always believed that the Democratic Party talks to uh, everyday folks and working folks. I think one of the problems is that we often didn't listen enough, particularly in my neck of the woods. 
and in Alabama and the South and other places are very similar to certain areas in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and other places. We have so much more in common than we have to divide us. We just let others define us more, and we haven't listened to folks that I think have been the base of the party for so many years. I think we, we changed that dynamic, and I'm hoping it's going to change across the country. Are voters angry? You know, I think they were angry at one time, and I think there's still a base of voters out there that are angry, and I'm not sure they really understand or know why they're angry. They're just mad. They're mad at people like your colleagues? I think they're mad at just everybody, and they, and they see the president as somebody who is also mad, and they don't see a lot happening, and they don't see a lot of things getting done. Right. So they're and right to be. Are they right to be mad? I think that there are. I think they have a right to be mad, and I think some folks, especially in the South, have got a right to be mad because they haven't. They truly haven't felt that people were listening to them. You know, Democrats and others were talking about different things, and we're trying to be very Republican light, and they weren't listening to the concerns. And I think they have a right to be mad at, at folks. So how do you respond to that anger? I think you listen. I think you get out there. You know, you cannot be afraid to go out and get into those areas that Democrats haven't carried and listen to folks and talk to them. You know, my whole campaign was based on having dialogues instead of monologues. And I think if you can go out at there and you can sit across the table like we're doing right now. It's in this very studio. podcast of you. Yeah, very podcast like <laughs> and just talk to people. I think that has an effect because I think people want to know they're being heard. I think they want to know they're being listened to, even though they, they know they're not going to agree with someone all of the time. If they are comfortable with their public officials, I think that we can pull so many people back in. Do you agree with some of these analyses that have come out recently suggesting that a lot of people who support this president, whether they like everything he does or says or not, are still not being respected and they're being dismissed and not being listened to? I'm not sure I completely agree with that. I think the time will tell as we go more toward the November elections. I think the first year of the Trump presidency was difficult for everybody to get used to. It was a sea change in the way the institutions of government are seen, how the people react to them, how the president reacts to them. And I think we're just now getting our sea legs, so to speak, and how we kind of deal with all of that, as well as responding to the administration that you're not sure exactly if you respond to what they say today or tomorrow or this hour or the next hour. That's been a difficult process. And I think people now are beginning to think and they're looking to these elections and they're listening to people more and they're seeing what's going on out there. I think that that's coming. I think this has just been a difficult year because it has been just upended government as we've known it for generations. I can't believe we're almost running out of time. We have so much more to talk about, and hopefully we can do this again. Absolutely. Can I ask a question about how you decide how to vote on a particular issue? So this is a representative democracy. Great question. You have your own conscience, and you're sent to the Senate, as I understand it, from civics and from being a citizen right. in, in this country, to vote on behalf of the people of Alabama. But you know, you don't take a referendum on every single right. issue. So, so how do you decide on a particular issue to vote the way, if you were untethered to people, how you would vote? versus what you think the majority of people in Alabama want? Great question. I think it's a question that senators and representatives should struggle with all the time. And the way I approach it is that I tend to let my conscience be the guide. 
because one of the things that I've talked to my staff about, and I don't think that we do enough of as public servants, is that we don't reciprocate in the education process. And we don't always explain our votes. And we don't always talk to people about the other side of issues. In in today's world of social media uh, and 30-second sound bites and 24-hour news, it's easy to develop an opinion very quickly. A tragedy happens. Something happens. And people immediately take sides. And I think part of my responsibility is also to explain and to try to help educate people as I go with the votes that I know are coming up. It's, it's very difficult to do. Doing my homework, studying, really trying to understand as much of the facts and details as I can, which most of the public just doesn't get. I mean, they don't have the access to the information that I do. So give us an example. Is there something that you had to vote on that was difficult so far and a yeah. struggle that, that maybe not everyone has understood? Yes. The Mike Pompeo vote was the most difficult. I've got another one coming up with Gina Haspel. The Pompeo vote was especially difficult for me because it was personally offensive to me and my family of the things he has said about the gay community. It was personally offensive to friends that I have in the Muslim community. And those were very, very concerning to me. However, after I met with him and and discussed those issues head first, face to face, eye to eye, I felt better about where he is. And I also felt better knowing that we really needed to have someone in the State Department. I mean, the the Secretary of State is our chief diplomat. He gave me assurances, and I felt good about the fact that he would not be as much of a war monger, as people said. And my concern was, you know, delaying this again after we've really effectively had no State Department since President Trump took office. And Rex Tillerson was not particularly competent. Exactly. I mean, we effectively had no State Department. And the alternative, if Mike Pompeo had not been confirmed, was that the president and John Bolton, who do not answer to Congress, would be continuing to run our foreign affairs. And that troubled me a lot. So it was a personally very, very difficult vote. At the end of the day, I voted for confirmation. And I felt comfortable with myself, and I've explained that to a lot of folks in in the Democratic Party in Alabama who are very upset with it. And I think at the end of the day, they understood. At least they did. Some people will never understand. Would it have made a difference in your vote on Pompeo if you had been potentially the deciding vote? No. 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 I I really was doing my homework. Uh, I read through the transcripts. I read through as much as I could, met with him, talked to others as well, got advice from a number of different people on both sides of the issue. And at the end of the day, it's speculation, but I like to think it would not have made any difference to me. Here's my last question to you. How do you think about the issue of Gina Haspel's nomination to head the CIA and the issue of enhanced interrogation slash torture? It's incredibly troubling. I mean, given the history that we just talked about, Preet, I mean, uh, with me, I've always been someone who has championed civil and human rights. I was on the board of and president of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. I think that what happened in those days was horrible. I think it hurt us a lot in our standing in the world. And it is particularly troubling. And it is, it is one that we are meeting on right after I leave here. I've got one hearing to go to. And I'm going to spend an hour with my staff going through everything to make a, a decision on that. And yet you contrast that with a woman, number one, who I'm very proud of for the career that she's had in the sense of of moving up, 
and the fact that this is a, the first woman named as a potential director of the CIA is something that also is big in my, her favor. She is incredibly qualified from a very technical aspect to take this job, probably as much as anybody that's been there. But there are certain things about one's past that can often disqualify you no matter what your other record will do. And that's what I'm trying to weigh right now. I'm now about to probably make my second most difficult decision. It may be even more difficult than the Pompeo vote. Senator Jones, separate and apart from whatever happens politically, I wish for you more Bon Jovi and more Springsteen <laughs> concerts. Really appreciate your taking the time. Hey, thank you. Anytime. I enjoyed this very much. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, sir. So I want to end the program by telling you about a four-part special series we have coming up. You know, we talk every week on the show about all aspects of the criminal justice system. So I thought it might be a good idea to take a step back, speak to some of the principal players in the system, and get their unique perspectives on what goes on before you get to court and once you're in court. Next week, in episode one, I'll be talking to one of the leading defense lawyers in the country. In episode two, we'll be getting the perspective from the prosecution side from a former United States attorney. In episode three, I'm chatting with someone who the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District charged and sent to prison while I was in office. And we'll close out the series with episode four, which is an all-question show. You'll remember a while back, I asked you for your questions about how things work in the courts and the law. And so I brought in some friends to help me answer them. That's all coming up starting next week. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Senator Doug Jones of Alabama. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAvoy. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.